Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're celebrating Father's Day on the show this week and sharing some fascinating conversations we've had with recent guests regarding their dads, including filmmaker Kirsten Johnson. She made a documentary called Dick Johnson is Dead, and it's about her real dad and his journey with dementia. The film is totally original. It's actually very funny considering the topic. Then comedian Chris Garcia is going to stop by. A lot of his stand-up relates back to his Cuban father. He's even got a whole podcast about his family. It's called Scattered, which he's going to tell us about. Then Jeff Tweedy from Wilco will be here. I think of his music as dad rock because I am a dad and I think it rocks. He's going to play us a song accompanied by his two actual sons. So things are going to get pretty daddish this week on the show, but in a good way. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. What's up, Daddy-o? Wow. Now we should clarify, it's Father's Day show. Daddy-o! This week. I'm a hip cat. Right, right. I'll see you at the drive-in. That's right. We'll get we'll a, a cheeseburger and a, and a malted for five cents. Uh, are you ready to play a little station identification location examination? You know I am. Okay, so this is where I uh, tell Elena about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. You've got to try to guess uh, where I'm talking about. Now, because we're talking about Father's Day on the show this week, this is where the first Father's Day was celebrated, June 19th, 1910. Hmm. Let me give you a hint. It's also the smallest city to ever have hosted the World's Fair. Spokane, Washington. Yes, you are exactly right, Elena. <laughs> Spokane, Washington, where we're on the air on KP. BX. How did you know that? I have visited the fair city of Spokane. I've actually visited that radio station as well. Great people there. And I remember seeing all of the remnants from the World's mm. Fair and thinking, this is a pretty modest sized hamlet to have hosted a World's Fair. So it came from my own reaction to that great place. They did not let it go to their head as Mm-mm. a city. Spokane, nope. Washington. All right. Well, really good memory, Elena. Should we uh, get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, filmmaker Kirsten Johnson. 
I said to my dad, I'm thinking maybe we can make a f- movie with you where we kill you over and over using stunt people <laughs> until you really die, for real. And comedian Chris Garcia. I was born a year after my parents got to the United States, and my dad wanted me to be an astronaut. He just got to America, and he wanted me to already go to space. With music from Wilco's Jeff Tweedy. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in from all over the country, including Spokane, Washington. It's a a special Father's Day episode of the show this week. Shout out to Tony and Walt. Tony P. Uh, We are going to hear the lessons that some of our listeners got from their fathers or father figures coming up with our audience question. That's a little later on in the show. First, though, we have got to tell you about the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Well, you know, I had to stop myself because I was going to say this is sort of sports news because it has to do with a sports team's cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. But cheerleading is absolutely a sport. So it is. Oh, my goodness. That show Cheer on Netflix? Yeah. The athleticism uh, that goes on with that competitive cheerleading is, uh, I put that up against any quote-unquote sport out there. And it's great sports because it's sports that involves dancing, which I love. Um, And it also involves the Carolinas, where I'm from. The Carolina Panthers have a dance team that gets the crowd going called the Top Cats. And there is a new Top Cat on the field who's going to be starting in the fall season. Her name is Justine Lindsay. This will be her NFL debut. She is a lifetime dancer, performer, athlete. She's a graduate of NC State. And she was in competition with like hundreds of other dancers for just 30 spots on this elite dance team. And it's kind of a magical moment because in addition to being so accomplished and cool and also very, very stylish on Instagram, Hmm. Justine Lindsay is the first out trans woman to cheer for the NFL, which is just amazing, especially in this era of other parts of the sports world not necessarily being welcome to trans people. Justine Lindsay auditioned, crushed it, came out. She's breaking down tons of barriers, not just as a trans woman, but also as a woman of color. There's been a lot of conversations about how cheerleading squads sometimes aren't that inclusive towards non-sort of blonde, white. There's a certain archetype of the quote-unquote cheerleader that I think, you know, comes from a lot of pop culture and things like that. So it sounds like Mm -hmm. she is really kind of blazing a new trail uh, as far as a lot of those stereotypes go. Yep. And she performs with her natural hair. She's bald. uh, So she looks amazing there. And, you know, the Carolina Panthers are kind of crushing it anyways in terms of inclusivity because last year they started uh, letting men onto the Top Cats squad. So there are two men who represent the LGBT community who are there last year and are going to be joining Justine this year. And I think I'm going to have to watch some football just to get a glimpse of this amazing squad. That's all really good news. Yep. Hey, the best news that I saw this week is involving the larva of something called the darkling beetle. Hmm. I don't know, Elena, if you get home delivery of the Journal of Microbial Genomics. Oh, yeah, um, every week. Well, uh, in the latest issue, so you've probably seen this article already. The centerfold's amazing. They were doing a study in... Australia, trying to figure out why it was that these, they're actually called super worms, but that's slightly misleading because what these larvae turn into is a beetle. 
Hmm. But this kind of little, you know, pudgy larvae thing, uh, they noticed that some of them were eating polystyrene, a.k.a. styrofoam, hmm. and surviving it. And not only surviving it, but actually reaching the pupa stage, like doing all right. And so this was just happening sort of accidentally. And so they thought, well, let's actually see if we can track this because, of course, getting rid of styrofoam is a big problem. Mm -hmm. We all know. I mean, even in the days before we thought about the environment the way we do now, I knew the McDLT box from (laughs) McDonald's was bad news, right? So they did this study down there in Australia where they basically got three groups of these super worms together. One of the groups ate bran. One of the groups ate styrofoam, and one of the groups ate nothing. Now, they ran into a problem. <laughs> There's some options. <laughs> the nothing group proved to be a problem because they started eating each other. Oh, no. So they had to separate them because that was messing up the data. Uh-huh. But what they found out was the uh, the groups that were eating the bran, they did really well. Uh, 93% of them actually metamorphosized into beetles. But surprisingly, 66% of the ones eating styrofoam also managed to turn into beetles. Wow. Only 10% of the ones not eating managed to turn into beetles. So what we've learned from this is eating bran is the best, mm-hmm. but eating styrofoam is not the worst. It's better than not eating if you're one of these super worms. But the reason this is so important is because they are now kind of studying the enzymes and the microbes in the, I guess, digestive system of these little superworms to figure out how it's actually processing and digesting and basically getting rid of this styrofoam. Mm. Because if they can do that, then they can create it on a larger scale and they may be able to come up with something to actually eliminate styrofoam. Wow. Instead of just trying to turn it into something that gets used again in the construction process, right now that's like the best thing they have. Like maybe we can make something else out of styrofoam that's useful, but there doesn't seem to be a very good way to actually you know, sort of rid it from planet Earth. And it's not that they're going to feed it to the worms. It's that they're going to replicate that process chemically. They're going to make a giant worm Ooh. the size I've seen this of movie. Newfoundland <laughs> and just feed it styrofoam. No, yeah, oh. they're going to they're gonna study the, the guts of these worms and see if they can figure out ways to actually break down styrofoam and, uh, and, and maybe try to do Mother Earth a little bit of a favor because it's long overdue. Cool. So that right there... Worm-based environmental technology, that's the best news that I heard this week. Hey, if you want some more good news in your life, head on over to our podcast feed where you can listen to our uh, brand new podcast. It's just the best news that we heard each week. We get to expand on the topics. Uh, So if you need a little positivity in your week, and who doesn't? Uh, We put it out every Wednesday, so go check that out. All right, our first guest this week is a cinematographer by trade. She shot the Oscar-winning film Citizen Four. Then she moved in front of the camera with her film Camera Person, which got rave reviews. Uh, Now she's released a project that features her and her father. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead, and it is really unlike any film I've ever seen. Uh, It's a film that they made together to come to terms with his impending death. Uh, It's funny, it's moving, it kind of has a surprise ending, and it received Sundance Special Jury Award for Innovation in Nonfiction Storytelling. It also got an Emmy for Outstanding Directing, and we're so excited to have her on the show. Take a listen to this, our conversation with Kirsten Johnson, recorded in 2020. Kirsten Johnson, welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. I'm happy to be here. 
Um, this is an incredible film that goes in all kinds of directions that uh, I wasn't expecting it to as, as the viewer. I, I'm just wondering, starting from the very beginning, how did you pitch your dad on the idea <laughs> for this movie? I said to my dad, I'm thinking maybe we can make a f- movie with you where we kill you over and over using stun people until you really <laughs> die for real. That was the actual conversation. That was the actual conversation. And he was like, I don't know why anyone would want to watch a movie like that, but I'd love to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, was it was that some kind of catharsis or pre-processing for you, trying to grapple with the idea of, of your dad's death by by sort of enacting it in multiple ways? Yeah, well, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's and my dad and I went through it together and it's brutal, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that we had like a lucky version of it. Mm -hmm. My mother stayed kind and nice and didn't get mean and cantankerous. And even still, it just, you know, the waves of anticipatory grief are so profound where you just like, you think you've lost everything you can lose and then boom, you lose something else Mm -hmm. of their personality. So I think that... um, Dad and I, having lived through that, we we knew what that looked like. It scared us. And both of us just wondered, is there any way to face this differently? Mm-hmm. Did it take away some of the fear around his death, too? Because you could have done a lot of things with your dad to kind of document his life. <laughs> and you went with, like, crushed by air conditioning unit, you know? <laughs> yes, I did. I also went with, you know— do a funeral in which, in which all of his friends show up mm-hmm. um, and get to hug him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also went with something that would expand our capacity to do things together. And um, so mm-hmm. the film just gave us opportunities neither of us ever dreamed of. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, you know, like yesterday, I got an email from a lawyer in Seattle who had seen the film not knowing it was my dad, and he'd worked with my dad for 30 years, and he just was staggered by the film and then wrote me this extraordinary letter about who my dad was as a professional, oh. um, things that I didn't know about my father. So it was almost like, you know, it brings back to life part of him that I never knew about. Wow. I mean, that that one of the most uh, kind of amazing moments in the film is this funeral that you staged, so your dad's still alive, but you get together what I presume are most of the Seventh-day Adventists in Seattle to <laughs> kind of like eulogize him. And man, the emotion is real in that room. Yeah. Like the people talking about your father and talking about difficult things about his memory loss because he was beginning to suffer from that. That was an intense, intense thing. How did you get all of those people in that room? Like, what did you tell them this was? Yeah, well, I told them exactly what I thought it would be, you know, that we would film it for a movie, but that we were all already grieving the idea of dad's disappearance. And, you know, the only thing I asked of them was to speak in the past tense. Mm. My brother refused to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But, um... You know, what I think is so interesting about this and about life in general is we all have these colossal blind spots and we can't know things until we know them. So, you know, we can't know what it's like to be 90 years old until we're 90 years old. Mm -hmm. We can't know what it's like to lose a parent until we've lost a parent. And so with all of these people at the church who have known our family, you know, for decades and decades and who were at my mother's funeral, 
I, you know, some of them I talked extensively on the phone about it because they were uncomfortable about it. They had questions. Mm-hmm. Others, you know, I, I simply wrote a letter of invitation explaining everything. And they're like, I can't wait to be there. And, you know, there's some people who dressed up, who wore crazy outfits. Like there are all kinds of things that people did, but they really responded um, with a desire to be there. But I would say Ray DeMazzo, my dad's best friend, who was 91 at the time, he went there. Yeah. He yeah. went yeah. to the most profound emotional place on behalf of all of us, I would say. And that's what I love about filming documentaries is that you always encounter these sort of profoundly unexpected things about life. And so in thinking about this film, I said, you know, dementia is unexpected, death is unexpected. How do we use the tools of cinema language to keep mining the ways the unexpected surprises us? You're listening to Kirsten Johnson talking about her documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead, here on Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, right over there, Elena Passarello. All right, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we are celebrating Father's Day this week on the show. And we're going to have much more with Kirsten coming up in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are talking Father's Day on the show this week, celebrating fathers, father figures, uh, anybody who falls into that category. We're playing an interview from 2020 with filmmaker Kirsten Johnson about her documentary about her actual father, Dick Johnson, The uh, film is called Dick Johnson is Dead. Take a listen to this. There's this one scene where your dad's really cold on a street corner. It looks like he's kind of hitting his limit. You guys are filming a scene where he would be sort of killed on the street by like a random accident (laughs) where somebody swings around with a piece of lumber on their shoulder. Happens all the time. He's going to bleed out (laughs) and... And I was just kind of thinking about how, you you know, in this, you're his daughter and you're also a filmmaker. Was it a challenge for you to remember w- which one you were in specific moments? You know, I think sometimes you can be both. Uh, 
sometimes you're trying to be both and you're overpowered by the emotion and you have to stop being one or the other. Um, and those kinds of things are unpredictable, which I also find interesting. And that's why we had sort of a, a setup of having a behind the scenes cameras filming what was happening because both my father with dementia and me as the daughter of my father with dementia trying to make a movie about him, like totally unpredictable how any of us are going to respond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could have said, whoa, 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 we got to stop doing this scene because my dad's upset. And then there would have been a conversation with the producers and that would have been filmed. So we sort of built into the process a documentation of our questioning mm-hmm. of the process. Mm-hmm. Were you very relieved when you could just be in your apartment with your dad with the door closed and there wasn't like four layers of (laughs) filmmaking going on? That just seems kind of exhausting. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, honestly, we didn't film that much for this movie. Mm. Um, I'm not a camera person who likes to film all the time in my own life, even though that's surprising to hear. So I was very discreet about the moments where I brought the camera into our lives I don't want to be a person who's filming other people all the time. I want to be a person who's in relationships with people, and sometimes the camera is a part of it. And, you know, the experience I've had as a documentary filmmaker is, you know, you, you're you there with a camera when something's happening that has stakes. So us leaving our family home that we've lived in for 50 years in Beaux-Arts Village, I'm going to have a camera there. Mm. But I don't know where me or my dad is going emotionally in that moment. But I knew something was going to happen, right? And your dad was a psychiatrist? That's correct. Did that, does that play into, I mean, I'm as a viewer trying to understand how much of Dick Johnson is because of psychiatric training and how much is just his natural way of being. Mm-hmm. There's this very powerful moment where you're talking about selling his car. And it's just to watch a human being work through loss and grief in a moment, but sort of keep their equanimity. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, I feel emotional even talking about Mm it. Is that just your dad or is that because he was a psychiatrist and he turned his brain into that kind of a machine? You know, I I think equanimity is such a beautiful choice of words, Luke. Um, You know, even yesterday I talked to him in the dementia care facility and he said, you know what? It's crazy, but I'm kind of enjoying myself. You know, he has these layers of self-awareness. And, you know, he's often said to me, oh, wow, I really feel for you, like, having to watch me lose my mind. Wow. Well, because you mentioned the fact that your dad is is actually alive still. Uh, has your dad seen the film? What does he make of it? Oh, my dad's seen the film hundreds of times. Yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of amazing thing about dementia, right? That that you can sort of encounter and re-encounter things and have them be completely mm-hmm. fresh for you. So dad was incredibly useful during the edit process because he'd see a scene as if for the first time and then could give us commentary about it and say like, this isn't funny enough or really? Like, I don't get, huh? oh, I don't get what's happening here. So that then we would re-edit, you know, in some ways, taking his response um, into account. And certainly the scene with Marta Baida, the wonderful caregiver, um, Mm. she and I and dad were watching the film and then a conversation started happening. And then I got out the camera and filmed her. And then we cut that into the film. So this sort of process of the film as a back and forth between all of the people who were involved in the relationships was the way we conceived it, both in terms of the team of people who made it and the people in front of the camera. Wow. 
And uh, what what sort of response have you gotten from from people who've watched the film? It, does it tend to drive people towards just really wanting to uh, hug their loved ones, uh, particularly people who are getting older? Like, what's the takeaway from the film for people? Well, you may be aware, Luke, but we're in a global pandemic right now. Uh, <laughs> I've heard something about <laughs> you heard that. Heard something about it. Uh, so I think we are all grappling with the idea of the uncertain in a way we didn't before. And, you know, it may be that we haven't seen our parents in months and months, but now when the pandemic says to us, you cannot see them, everyone has to grapple with conversations they have or hadn't had yet, right? And so mm-hmm. I think for me, you know, I didn't see this pandemic coming either, <laughs> even <laughs> though we were focused on the idea of the unexpected throughout the making of this film. So I think it lands in a context where, um all of us are feeling new capacities to face things that we were afraid of facing, um, new mm-hmm. urgencies, um, new questions. And, you know, one of the responses I get from people is like, yes, I'm going to call someone immediately after seeing this film. But also that I, you know, people are saying I might consider making something with someone Like, what can we Uh make together? You know, you here, Mm -hmm. Elena and Luke, you record things, right? And and the recording Mm -hmm. of a conversation sort of crystallizes a conversation. It It makes it more dynamic and crystalline. It's catalytic to record. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hope in some ways that this film encourages people to say to themselves, it's not too late, even Mm -hmm. if someone that they love is already dead. There are still people who knew them, Mm. who you can talk to, who you can record with. It's not too late to imagine yourself no longer alive and who might miss you Mm. or feel in pain when you are gone. So, Mm. you know, that feeling we have of it's all too late. It's not too late for this planet. It's not too late for this country to really face the the pain of who we are. Mm You have children yourself, Kirsten. If one of them came to you in about 30 years with the same idea for a project, would you be into that? Wouldn't that be awesome if I had that (laughs) child? I mean, I think before making this movie, I would have said definitely not. (laughs) Um, But, you know, just because, you know, I think we all care deeply about our image in the world, our legacy, Mm-hmm. But our legacy lives in other people, and we don't know what it is. And the fact is, you know, when I was making Camera Person, I thought I was making it about the past. And then the, this woman in Bosnia says to me, you know, oh, you're making this so your children will see who you were. And in this case also, I consciously thought, I'm making this movie, my children will know who my father was. But in fact, mm-hmm. this movie is also evidence of who I am and who I was mm-hmm. for the future in which I will not be. This movie is just so powerful and it really it really takes the fear out of a lot of things that I think mm-hmm. we walk around afraid of, you know, uh, in our lives. And so it's just and it's super funny. Yeah. Too. So great job, Kirsten. This is a really, really uh, important piece of filmmaking. Thank you all so much. That was Kirsten Johnson recorded last year. Her film Dick Johnson is Dead is streaming on Netflix right now. And I can't overstate this. It's really something. Yeah, it's amazing.
Hey, special thanks this episode to Sarah Miller of Seattle, Washington, and Anastasia Moro of Portland, Oregon. Sarah and Anastasia are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is how we can keep doing the show. Therefore, we are very, very thankful for this support. So a big thanks to Sarah and Anastasia for supporting Livewire. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask our listeners a question because we're talking fathers on the show this week and father figures. The question was, what's the most important thing your father or a father figure ever taught you? Elena, what are the listeners saying? I love this one from Feline, who says, a great piece of fatherly advice, how to read a map. Also, how to make decisions for myself, which he probably later regretted. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you you did it right, right? If you raised someone or helped raise someone who then has no problem diametrically opposing you on various topics. Yeah. Also, reading a map, probably maybe not something that fathers are teaching their kids so much anymore. If you are from my generation, though, I'm 46, the handing of the Thomas guy <laughs> was a like a rite of passage. Like, you know, you, you, you get your driver's license, you buy some old beater of a car, and then, in my case, my dad brings me the, the Thomas guide, which uh, is this very thick book of maps cross-referencing every street in a city. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I ever even actually learned how to use it, but it lived in the glove compartment of my 1980 Honda Civic. Yes. Do you remember when you used to just print out MapQuest directions and just yes. have like 16 pages? and that pages. seems so futuristic. <laughs> <was> so remember, <laughs> you have your MapQuest printout and you're like, well, the future is now. It's not going to get more advanced than this. No way. <laughs> What's uh, something else that one of our listeners learned from their father or a father figure? How about this one from Ellen? Ellen's fatherly advice, never pick a fight with my mom. <laughs> <gasps> It's true. Sometimes I was an only mm-hmm. child growing up with my mom and stepdad. And uh, there were definitely times where we both were kind of allied mm-hmm. about like, uh-oh, like when my mom would wake up from a nap, we'd try to give her chocolate right away because her blood sugar was low <laughs> and she'd be cranky. So uh, that's one thing that I learned is if your mom's cranky after a nap, give her some chocolate. <laughs> In my family, what we learned was it, the only thing that we can do that will make our dad mad is say something critical about our mom. Like my dad is the gentlest spirit, unless he thinks that one of us is roasting our mom a little too hard. And there's seven kids and our favorite hobby is roasting our mom. But boy, (laughs) if if we go a little too hard with it, that's the only thing that will get Walt up in arms. So, which is, I think kind of actually a charming quality. It's probably why they've been married for roughly 800 years. (laughs) Um, All right. One last piece of fatherly advice. Oh, I love this one from Barbara. Barbara's father says, always split aces and eights. (laughs) That's a dead man's hand, right? Did I I raise Barbara? Did I have a, have I completely, is that my daughter under a nom de plume? I mean, that is sage blackjack advice from somebody who probably has come by that uh, information honestly and has a certain financial loss. (laughs) Well, thanks to everyone who sent in a response. We've got a listener question for next week's show, which we're going to uh, share with you at the end of today's program. In the meantime, you are listening to Livewire from PRX. We're celebrating Father's Day on the show this week. Of course, our next guest, Chris Garcia, has a lot to say about his dad. He's appeared on Comedy Central, This American Life, and WTF with Mark Marin. 
uh, Chris, we mean not his dad. That would be sort of a surprising twist. Um, we had Chris on the show back in 2019 for some stand-up and also to talk about his podcast, Scattered, uh, that he was developing at the time, which was about his father's wishes to have his ashes scattered off the coast of Cuba. So take a listen to this. It's Chris Garcia performing in front of our live audience back in 2019 at the Alberta Rose Theater. Hi, how's it going? A little bit about me. Uh, my family's from Cuba. I am the first person in my family born in the United States. Anybody else? <laughs> there was a laugh. <laughs> so I was like, are you kidding? No. How about someone, how about the Mayflower? Anyone's family come over on the Mayflower? Just kidding, my family. Put a lot of pressure on me as a kid. My father wanted me to be an astronaut. I was born a year after my parents got to the United States, and my dad wanted me to be an astronaut. That's how ambitious my dad was. He just got to America, and he wanted me to already go to space. I think he forgot that he's a hardworking immigrant. I'm an American. My dream is to get hit by a Walmart truck and get paid for the rest of my life. Not trying to do space math over here. I love my parents a lot. I, uh, I try uh, to speak about my family in a dignified manner because I think you've seen a lot of comedians maybe speak lowly of their immigrant parents or they make fun of them in a way and I don't think we should do that anymore. And I think for uh, a lot of reasons, uh, it's rude. Uh, it's also very unfair, you know? My dad never got on stage and made fun of me. My dad never came here and made fun of me. Never once did he get on stage. And he wasn't like, uh, hey, you guys, anybody have an American-born kid? <laughs> no, but okay, I'm going to talk about it. Oh, oh, man. My son, Christian, he goes by Chris. <laughs> Getting on stage, oh, I'm Cuban. Whoa, wow. He doesn't look Cuban. He looks like he works at Trader Joe's or something. You believe this guy, man? I tell you what, me and his mom, her name is Martica, were refugees from Cuba. In our 30s, we came to the United States. A year later, boom, Christian. Chris. <laughs> wow, okay, Chris pops out. I'm so excited. He's my only son, my only American-born kid. He's my second chance. I do everything for this boy. I work blue-collar jobs. Graveyard shift. I put him in a escuela privada, a private school. We got him tutors because he's stupid. <laughs> he came out undercooked. I don't know what happened. Mom forgot to preheat the oven, but he came out a little soft, but I don't care. I say, Christian, this is America, the land of opportunity. You can do forever you want. Forever you want. <laughs> You're a good person. You don't fool around. You work hard. You pay your taxes. You can do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Christian goes to UC Berkeley for college. One of the best public universities in the United States. <laughs> and you want to know why he studied? Any, uh, anybody want to take a gander? <laughs> I wanna, he studied poetry. Poetry! Are you telling me I floated through shark-infested waters on a hubcap so this... Can read haikus. 
My dad never did that. <laughs> Great guy. You know, I did this show recently at a comedy festival, and this other comedian afterwards stopped me, and he said he was cheap that I was talking in my dad's voice, and that I had, it was cheap and unfair that I was talking about my heritage, and that it gave me an unfair advantage. <laughs> but I thought about it. I think the guy's right. Like, I remember when my dad sat me down, and I was a little boy, and he said, Chris, as a firstborn son of refugees, your life is going to be harder in every way. You grew up poor. You're not going to have as many opportunities out the gate. Um, kids might make fun of your lunch at school. You're going to have the first mustache in third grade. <laughs> but there's going to come a time when you need to make a room full of strangers laugh, and then you can rely on my crazy Cuban accent. I have every right to create art based on the circumstances of my life. I am very proud of being Cuban, though. I do, I do get annoyed how people have exoticized it a little bit. You know what I mean? Have you been? Oh my god, you have to go. You have to go before it changes. Just picture it, drive around in an old cars, smoke a cigar. It's a perfect level of poverty for Instagram right now. <laughs> the people, they're so poor, but they're so happy. Have you heard people talk like this? Oh my gosh, it makes me so sick. You know who never vacations in Cuba? Cubans that left Cuba. <laughs> my parents left 40 years ago. They've never gone back. When I lived in San Francisco, my dad wouldn't even visit Alcatraz. <laughs> he was like, you want me to go to a prison island surrounded by sharks? <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, can't fool me again. <laughs> you guys have been great. Thank you so much. Good night. That's Chris Garcia. Uh, Chris, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I didn't know you were, that you studied poetry in college. I sure did. How did you end up where you're at now? I think they both stemmed from marijuana in college. Um, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I just really loved, I was, I was a sensitive kid, and sometimes I'm sad, and sometimes I express it in a happy way, like in comedy, and sometimes I have to be emotional and write it out. Do you still write poetry now that you're a comedian? No, and I just moved and I looked back and read some of those poems, and what a waste of money and time that was <laughs> for me. I loved reading it, but writing it, oof, not my bag. <laughs> when, did you, when did you start doing comedy then? Um, well, my first sets were kind of during spoke, like slams, but I was like the funny poetry slam guy. Right. And then I started doing improv and then I was like, I don't need a group of people. And then <laughs> I'm a one man show, baby. And I was like, and the answer then, is always, yes, I am better without you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. And I'm going solo. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so then I started stand up, and I've been doing it for now 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Thank you.
I'm, I know you are working on this new podcast that uh, WNYC Studios is going to put out. Your mom is involved in at least the kind of early stages of it. What is the show? So my wonderful father, who I talk about in my act, he passed away two years ago. Uh, it's okay. I had a great dad. And he's just such a good person with such an interesting life that we decided to, uh, and it's, we, I guess we just announced it yesterday, that we're going to have a 13-episode uh, podcast on WNYC about my dad, my family, and then dealing with like grief and loss uh, in a comedic manner. Because uh, my mom is super funny. <laughs> like my mom, thank you. My mom, one of the questions I asked her when we first started re recording the podcast, and I was like, mom, if dad was alive for five minutes, what would you say to him? And the WNYC people were like, that's a good question. And without flinching, my mom was like, five minutes? I'd have sex with him. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she was like, five minutes isn't enough. And I was like, how long do you know is enough? She's like, you know, when it starts, you never know when it's going to end, honey. <laughs> I was like, wow. So my mom is able to talk in very it's gallows humor. That is so hilarious. Uh, we also interviewed my uh, cousin Machito, who is my mom's cousin from Cuba, who, like my father, was a political prisoner for many years. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about his experiences and if he could see things in my father that he uh, knows uh, about himself and trauma and stuff like that. And so this is how grateful my cousin is to be in the United States. So Machito told me that he had been a political prisoner. He'd been in prison so many times he can't remember. And his longest stints were three years and one year, but altogether, he's been in a political prison for multiple years. He comes to the United States in like 2004, and the first job he gets is as a janitor working for a janitorial company. And the company, uh, they're like, hey, you can you know, clean a school for like uh, $7 an hour. You can do a hospital for like $8.50, or you could do a maximum security prison for $10.50. And he's like, give me the prison. So he's telling me the story. He's working in a prison. He's working in a wing of the prison where there's rapists and murderers. And one night, he gets locked in with the inmates. Overnight. He's supposed to leave at 1 AM. He's stuck there until 6 in the morning. And I was like, what the hell was that like? He was like, they paid me overtime, man. <laughs> It's this type of like humor that is like so human and it seems so dark, but it's so, it's so real. And from uh, like, I, I love my dad so much and I feel like I want to immortalize the man or uh, at least have a nice uh, living memorial of him. And I think this podcast is a nice way to do that. And it's also a nice way to help those that may have experienced something similar. So All right. I think it'll we'll be look cool. for it from WNYC. Chris Garcia, okay, everyone. Thank you so much. That was Chris Garcia, recorded back in 2019 at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. If you'd like to hear more about Chris and his dad, you can check out his podcast, Scattered, from WNYC Studios. It was named one of the 10 best podcasts of 2019 by Time Magazine. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating fathers on the show this week with some past conversations about the dads that we love. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to hear a song from a dad that I love almost as much as my own father. 
Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. He's going to be playing a song along with his actual sons. So stick around for that. It's coming up in just a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I am Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're celebrating Father's Day on the show this week, and uh, there is no musician whose work has been in heavier rotation over the last probably 20 years of my life than our guest this week. Uh, by the way, a lot of that listening was done with me and my daughter together, which makes us feel all kind of extra special on a Father's Day show. In all, he's released over 20 studio albums, including this year's Cruel Country, uh, which he recorded with his band Wilco. He's also got a memoir out. He releases a cool newsletter that I subscribe to, just basically like my favorite singer on planet Earth. So uh, check this out. It is our conversation we recorded with Jeff Tweedy right here on Livewire. Jeff, welcome to the Livewire house party. Thank you for having me remotely. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been a fan of your music for many, many years and have always really dreamed of getting you onto a radio show. Uh, to interview you, it's sad it took a pandemic for it to happen, but I will <laughs> consider that a silver lining. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I think I like to think that I would, I would have done this if it wasn't for the pandemic. So, um, it's just a coincidence, I think. <laughs> well, you've been doing this, um, like Instagram, uh, show with your family that I have been watching and it is fascinating, but not even for the reasons <laughs> I was expecting. Like I thought it was going to be a concert, but it's just like a fly on the wall in the Tweety family dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know why we're doing it, I just, but uh, <laughs> but it's uh, oddly comforting to us, and it seems to have that same effect on other people somehow. I didn't want it to be like a like a substitute for a concert or that kind of connection. Um, my my feeling is is that everything is so disorienting that being reminded that there is like some normalcy, some shared reality is maybe helpful to confront the disorienting parts of what's happening. And then also I know that you you make music with your kids. We're actually going to hear a song. Mm -hmm. What's that like collaborating with them and does that like does the parental child dynamic come into play? Um well it's just sort of I I think it's uh just a normal activity like playing catch or something for for us and we were out on the road and, and the tour started to fall apart and started getting more and more cancellations. And we were, we were preparing to kind of lop off the last half of the tour and come home. And then, um, then all of a sudden, like overnight, almost everything got canceled. So, uh, I got home and, and almost, I think, I think it was the first day I was home. We started recording a record <laughs> and thinking about making music, you know, in a, in that context, uh, like it was something to do to take our mind off of everything. 
you're going to play a song for us, I understand. You you and your sons, right? What are we going to hear? Uh, we're going to hear one of the songs that we worked on in the last few weeks. And uh, I think it was like the second or third song uh, that we recorded when the uh, shelter-in-place order came down. Okay, what's it called? It's called Save It For Me. All right, well, let's take a listen. Save it for me When the world falls apart I can say with certainty There's a reason A light left on in an empty room Is how love can be A rainbow in a mouth of clouds Darkened days, who needs you now? Darkened days, who needs me now? Save it for me When the world falls apart I can say with certainty Thank you so much, you guys. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Stay safe. You too. Yeah, you too. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye.
That was Jeff Tweedy right here on Livewire. We recorded that back in April of 2020. Now, since that interview, Jeff has published a book called How to Write One Song, Loving the Things We Create and How They Love Us Back. This guy cannot stop generating content that I love to consume, Elena. Uh, Also, uh, he has a new album out with Wilco. It's called Cruel Country, so check that out as well. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. First up, we're going to talk to former Saturday Night Live writer Sam Jay about her HBO show. It's called Pause with Sam Jay. It's a really interesting idea for a show. It basically starts with Sam kind of having a get-together at her apartment, and then the people that come over are like comics Mm -hmm. and artists and thinkers, and they all just kind of like basically bat around cultural issues and various topics. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited to talk to Sam about that. Uh, then we're also going to get some comedy from our friend Sean Patton, plus music from psych pop master Kurt Vile. I'm a big Kurt Vile fan, so we were super stoked to get him on the show. You're going to hear that next week. And as always, we're going to be listening to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? We want to know, what is your go-to icebreaker? That is apropos because of, like, the format of Sam J's TV show. But mm. also, I could use some tips. Would you rather have fangs or a tail? That's mine. Wow. Okay. Well, now I'm set. Now I'm, all my parties <laughs> between now and next week's show are going to go splendidly because I'll know how to break the ice. <laughs> all right. If you've got an answer to the question, what's your go-to icebreaker? Send them in via social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Kirsten Johnson, Chris Garcia, and Jeff Tweedy. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our outgoing development and marketing director. We are going to miss you so much, Tim. Don't leave us, Tim. Stay, We're going to be lost without you. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And Viviana Castillo-Serrano is our intern. Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamfrom Charitable Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Sarah Miller of Seattle, Washington, and Anastasia Morrow of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on 
the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 